Hello, this is David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Eugene Vodoloshkin's novel, Loris, a contemporary Russian novel. And uh, before we dive into that, Tim, how was the how were the birthday festivities uh, last week on Galen's birthday? Oh, they were good. They're kind of ongoing. She has a special surprise coming up on Monday, which I will not mention on the air. Um, but she does she knows she has a surprise with, coming. She does know. She does. She, know. Knows she, she just knows to take the evening. She knows to take the evening off. That's all she okay. really knows. Okay. And she's been okay. inundated um, with gifts from friends, loved ones, and husband. You don't follow their loved ones? I don't. I don't. I play okay. a support role. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I do fall <laughs> under loved ones, I guess. It's support role. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing so great. How about you, David? How are you? I'm good. Hey, when is Scott's birthday? May 18th. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Some, some warm weather birthdays. Yeah, yeah. Warmish in Colorado. Sometimes. Yeah, you did get snow in June. Ugh. Yeah. So, well, speaking of uh, warm-ish, uh, this is a strange winter in Loris, and uh, nice this is transition. this is mm-hmm. a we're going to discuss chapters or well uh, pages fifty three through one hundred nine. It's hard to know exactly how to describe the chapter numbers because they have this. They're Russian. Yeah, they're Russian. So Russian. This is a Russian novel That's in right. so many ways. <laughs> That's right. But it goes up through the first uh, two sections of um, the Book of Renunciation. I know those of you who are on audiobooks, it's a little bit tricky uh, to know, but it ends with, uh, but Arseny was alive, and though the princess and her daughter were still very weak, they were healthy. So... Um, we, uh, Heidi, you posted in, or somebody posted on the Facebook group, a place to cross-reference with the audiobook, those oh, chapter numbers. I don't know so. anything about that, but I'm really glad to hear that, that something like that exists because I'm a little bit at a loss to help our, our listeners who are following along on audiobooks. So look for that on the Facebook page. Yeah, so a couple of people underneath the schedule post, people were putting it in the comments. So oh, good. It's, it is a bit tricky and, and um, I don't have it on audio. And so it's, it's a little bit... Um, I was unsure how to how to help the fine people who are listening via their audiobook app. Tim, I got a question for you in a second, but I want to start with something for Heidi because at the close of last week's episode, I don't know if you were still around, Tim. You may have bounced at that point. Heidi said, "Be on the lookout." There's a scene in this next section, and we know that in this chat, in this section, Ustina comes to Arseny, and this. Of this relationship develops and then she gets pregnant and then there's this kind of harrowing childbirth scene in which she and the baby both die and then he has the um, he has the their bodies in his home until someone breaks down the door and they take them away to a potter's field and then the this holy man comes to him, comes to Arsene and says what are you doing? Get out there this is how you you know, you need to be life for her, basically. I'm, I'm going really fast here. And then he begins his life as this healing figure and he goes around from village to village healing people and, and taking care of bodies of the people who have died during this particular plague, this pestilence. So that's kind of where the section ends. He has begun this wandering nomadic life as a healer. Had you said 
that there was a scene and I wanted to just double check that it was the scene that you were talking about the, the um, tragic childbirth sequence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's the most graphic scene I've ever, like the most personally impactful graphic scene. I've only ever read it once. I've read this book a few times, but I can't read it again after my first time reading it. You skipped so you this skip, section. You skipped this section. I didn't skip the section, but I I the only sto- this skimmed story. over. Yeah. I did not carefully read yeah, yeah, Lucina yeah. and the baby's death. Hmm. That's a really intense for me. And I think that's from from my conversations with other people, probably mostly women who have given birth. Like mm-hmm. that. I mean, I can't imagine I any that that's just it's such a vivid description of of the death like and and such a fear right such like a primal fear to die in childbirth or to lose or to be like Arsenia can you like from conversations I've even had with men who have been present at the birth of their children with their wives like that that fear of losing her and it was his fault like he killed her that's just such an intense scene go ahead tim when i think about this book i think about this scene Mm -hmm. you know it almost like it's so powerful it almost makes everything else kind of like postscript and in a way everything else is postscript i mean it's the turning point yeah it's early it's early in the story but this is the turning point yeah So I wanted, I I have a question. Mm -hmm. My question is, um, I'm trying to think how to word it. Is the rest of this book, Arseni kind of working out the sin of what happens here? And I think the answer in some ways is yes. Um, like he's, he's responsible in some way for this. And it, it, it's really hard to ask this question. I think if, okay, let's go back. The, um, the movie, The Mission. Have you guys seen The Mission? No. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. And Robert De Niro is, isn't he a slave trader, David? Like before the, Something like during the like beginning. That, yeah. yeah. He, and he converts to Christianity and he wants to do penance, needs to do penance. And so part of the story is that he's dragging around this heavy net of armor everywhere that he goes. And it's, it, he feels so terrible. He's absolutely in like, just, he can't get over his own sin in a way. And there's this scene fast forward. If you want to see the movie, cause it's a really fine movie. I think one of the priests who's been with him as he works off his penance is so sick of it, of the, of the self-flagellation that he runs over and he hacks this cord from Robert De Niro to this burden that he's been carrying. And he kind of frees him metaphorically and literally from this burden. And so my question is kind of a theological question in very little is made in the book about like Arsene's 
sin. It seems like it's maybe pride more than anything else. Like, I got this, baby. I know you're worried about childbirth. I know I've never been present for a childbirth, but I've gotten good training. Don't worry about it. I got it. I got it. I got it. He doesn't have it. We don't know if a midwife could have saved his wife. We don't know, but it's reasonable to expect something could have gone differently. So my theological question is, is this arsony, is the rest of the book arsony working out his salvation in from this like horrible, horrible error? Or the other way to think about it is in some way he, he just had to go through a massive suffering to just separate himself from the world. Like he just has nothing left in the world, nothing left. He has no family. He has no affection. He has no ties anywhere. And are we to understand this death, these deaths to be his separation from the world? So it's kind of like, which way do you think we should see it as him working off his sin and working out his salvation? Or do you think that we should see it as like the cord being cut between he and the world? Can, can we talk about this without talking about the rest of the book though? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can. I think we can talk about it without talking about the rest of the book. Like, okay. okay <laughs> Heidi, you, okay. Let me, let me ask. I'll be, I'll ask in more specific ways that protect us from talking about the rest of the book. First mm-hmm. time you read this book, were you Orthodox? No. So first time you read this book, you got to the end of this like horrible story. How did you think? frame this for yourself? How did you think about Arsini's plight? Um, I think that with, I mean, (laughs) we're taking a little bit of time to frame these questions and answers, right? A little bit more pauses than normal. And I think that that speaks to the greatness of this novel. Um, this, this novel and this particular what we have come to already at the beginning of the novel here is um, it's the foundation for everything. Like everything Mm. that comes out of this, you know, David's questions are like really valid. Can we talk about this question without, without giving any spoilers? Sure. We can, we can avoid plot spoilers, but the reality is, is that everything that happens in our Sunny's life comes from this and and i was not orthodox when i read this book but this book had a profound influence on my conversion to the to orthodoxy because i there's there's no other story and i'm only going to speak for myself and i this is not proselytizing this is only my own existential and spiritual experience with this book i i have never encountered a narrative in life or in fiction that has more highlighted to me the difference between the Orthodox mind and the Protestant mind Mm. than this book. Because when I got to this part, and essentially what the elder says is, spend the rest of your life uh, like in penance for what you have done. And that will be your pilgrimage to God. Mm. 
That will be your path to God. Bearing that suffering will be your participation in the sufferings of Christ. He says to him, you have a difficult journey for the story of your love is only beginning. Everything, oh, Arseni, will now depend on the strength of your love and of course on the strength of your prayers too. Like that rang true for me. Mm. And that is not at all how I had ever thought of Christian spirituality. I'd always had in mind, like you commit a sin, you repent and you are set free and you have to pay no consequences because that's what Christ did on the cross. This is a very profoundly different way of thinking of recovering and healing the soul from the deep sins of our life. And it rang true for me and I loved it. And I, and I now believe it to be true. But I think that one of the things that this book raises, at least for me, and I think for everybody who is coming at this with the Western mind and in and, and a modern mind, is how profoundly different this form of Christian spirituality is that's presented in this book as how we moderns and Westerners think of grace and God's mercy in the pilgrimage of the Christian life. And you don't have to agree with it like I do, but we have to wrestle with it. That's the question we're given in the book, I think, is wrestling with that. Like, this is how, this is the Christian journey as presented in this book. What do we, what do we do with that as moderners and as Westerners? especially as Protestants, because Catholics, I think, will also, Western Catholics will also relate to this idea of penance as being not the earning of salvation, but as you said, Tim, the working out of salvation. Um, and, and that is, I mean, it's not giving too much away because that's what the elder actually says, is everything will now depend on the strength of your love for you, Stina. So that's the conflict we're given, I think, in the book is was this the right thing? Should he have done this? Should he keep doing this? The thing that complicate, complicates it a bit, though, is that they're also talking about Ustina's life and salvation. And he basically is saying... They're tied together, yeah. Is it, he says, I took away her earthly life. The elder looks calmly at Arsene. So then give her your own. Mm-hmm. But is it really possible for me to live instead of her? If approached from the proper perspective, yes. Love made you and Eustina a united whole, which means a part of Eustina is still here. It is you. So then he says, you know, when you need the, your act of penance is also the acts of love that you make and the acts of penance that you make are the things that are her hope as well. And so that, that complicates things a little bit and also speaks to his motivation for for like hitting the road, so to speak, you know, there's this, this relationship with Eustina is not something that disappears. He talks to her as he's going from village to village. And so it's not just about adding on to what you're saying, Heidi, not disagreeing with it. It, that adds, it makes it more complicated, more interesting because it's this sort of mystical relationship that's, still sort of ongoing in a sense despite her death is making it's like narrative drive and motivation all that but it's also like adding to the spiritual complexities of what's going on and the things that make it a little unusual spiritually you know in terms of the theology of it right well i'll oh go ahead well no i was gonna ask tim what he was gonna say but if you want no you go ahead you go heidi well i was i was gonna add 
that then that is why the question of time becomes so integral within the story mm. and why why the movement in and out of time mm-hmm. for Arseni is so redemptive and salvific within the story because as as the elder reminds him you can only be saved in this life and you cannot be saved in the afterlife but and and Ustina has she she died without confession uh, the baby died without baptism, um, and 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 so there's there's a profound danger for her soul in that, and it was denied to her because of him. Like he did that to her. He kept her from the priest. He kept her from the midwife out of his own pride and lust and all these things. And so the question of time becomes important because in sequential time, Ustina dies without the sacraments. In eternal time, however, God can still redeem it in this life if Arseni will give the rest of his life to her. And then he gets, in in a sense, to step outside of time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, and move backwards in a redemptive time, kind of mysterious, the mystery of time in that way. Well, and that's, that's part of the meeting of time and eternity in this novel, which is why I think it's the greatest, one of the greatest love stories in literature. I, I love this love story. Um, and I, I think it's that that's, that's why we're given all these glimpses into this like time bending, which might feel like magical realism, but it's also mysticism and Christian spirituality. Well, and we get, you know, the, the, the church and the early church fathers talk about the idea of the church being outside of time as well, which is why, like, you know, not to get, get too deep into it, but you'll hear like, you know, people talk about like the idea of can the saints pray for us, even though they don't like are not alive still. But the, and if they exist outside, they're not omnipresent, right? They're right. not everywhere and in time. Yeah. But if they live outside of time, if the church is outside of time, then that opens up a whole different realm of, poss- of possibilities, which, yeah, it seems like a little bit of magic. Tim, what were you going to say, though? And I want to talk about this question of magical realism, which you brought up last week, Tim. But you were going to say something a few minutes ago. Well, I'm keenly aware that I might be sort of like a stand in for. Um, people that have a Protestant background that listen to the show. And so I kind of just want to speak to that. And I want to speak to it because we talked about this last week, but I think it's just worth restating. We're immersing ourselves, not just in a different culture in a different time, Russia in, you know, late medieval world, but also like a different theological world. I remember reading this book called The Nature of Doctrine by George Lindbeck, who died, I think maybe in the 1980s or 90s. And it's a it's a really, really wonderful book. And he had a very ecumenical, it's a very ecumenical book. He um, came from a Protestant background, if I'm not mistaken. And he wrote this book because he said, you know, in my endeavors to get churches to work with each other and um, understand each other, there's kind of this consistent problem. And the consistent problem is that we compare doctrine to doctrine. And so Protestants complain about Catholics' vision of salvation, you know, and Catholics complain against Protestants' vision of the church. And what he says is that the, you, there's kind of like, you can't resolve these doctrinal differences if you're just comparing doctrine to doctrine. What you have to compare is 
narrative to narrative or kind of like the big scope um, of these different theologies. And only when you understand the big scope of these different theologies, can you understand the differences of doctrine within them, if that makes sense. So, so the meaning of the particular doctrine changes in these different traditions slightly, but the reason it changes is because like the broader understanding of the world is slightly different. So I just want to say that again, to say, again, like if you have kind of a Protestant background and you hear something like, wait, work out your salvation through like, what do you mean? Our salvation is accomplished once and all by the grace of God through, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ. Then you're not really like giving yourself over to the book and in close reads consistently argues, give yourself over to the book. There's going to be plenty of time. If you want to do a critique, there's plenty of time to do that afterwards. You're in no hurry. And nothing bad is going to happen if you kind of like give yourself over to the rubric of this like world that we're inhabiting. So I, I hope I'm not belaboring the point, but I just think it's really, it's just important because this is one of the, here, I'm going to use another analogy. I remember when I moved to the Pacific Northwest, I remember thinking, I live in the same country as the as Atlanta, the city that I was born and raised in. But when I moved to the Pacific Northwest, after a few months, I thought, this is not the same country. We speak the same language, but this is not the same country. And it was jarring. And the only reason it was jarring is because it was so similar to the Southeast. The Pacific Northwest mm. is so similar in so many ways to the Pacific Northwest. And I think something similar might happen here. Like we read in these pages um, theological descriptions and it might feel like it's our home territory if we're a Protestant or a Catholic but it, and it might get frustrating when we realize, oh, it's actually, it's really similar, but it's really different. And it, in, in a way, that's more jarring than just moving to a completely different country. Hmm. Like it was more jarring to live in the Pacific Northwest than it would have been to live in Ghana. Because I would have just accepted right away, Ghana is a really different place than the world that I grew up in. So, right. I think we, you're bringing up a really important point, Tim. And... I mean, probably similar to what all three of us experience when we're reading, say, an overtly Catholic novel, which we've read many times right. on the show, right? And none of the three of us are Catholic. And and yet we encounter this novel and there's something that it adds to our understanding of the world or, or of our faith um, or of human nature or the literary tradition. That same thing can happen here. And I also think it's really important for me to say as somebody who is profoundly influenced by the book, it's important for me to caveat it with. I think that there's other ways to read this than and and love it than from within the Orthodox tradition. Like I think that that's really important to say. Like there's a way of even understanding just the same way that universally say Brideshead Revisited, which is a important Catholic novel in the 20th century, and we just did uh, the Close Reads retreat on it. It's secular people read that book and have no understanding of Catholicism um, or very little understanding of it or just aren't Catholic. And they're like, I love this novel, but I don't look at it the same way that a Christian does, mm -hmm. right? And they interpret it very differently. And I think that there's, a, that's, that's what the beauty of this book is. Like the, you, you can read this and just see it exactly to your point that you brought up earlier, just interpret Arseni as 
psychologically distancing himself from the world out of grief Mm. and doing good works along the way and telling himself a story about Ustina that kind of keeps him alive and nourishes him in his grief, Um, even if it wasn't necessary on a theological level or wasn't his path to whatever salvation means, right? You can still read it from an outside perspective, not accept it, um, and, and find something really beautiful and meaningful in it. And, and I, I think that, you know, there's just, that's what, that's what's so great about these novels that have these ambiguities and, uh, and take the risk of not being propaganda, but just give us a wonderful story to wrestle with. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't love this book the way you guys do and I'm Orthodox. And so like, I can see a lot of stuff in it. That's like, it should be right up my Mm. theological alley. Right. But it's those moments can, I mean, I think I'm, I'm the unique one in this, but they feel, they can feel a little cold to me in a way that just because every reading books for everybody is different. Right. And I don't look at that. Like this is a flaw in the book. It's just that there's something that's not in that moment. It's not catching it for me. And I think part of it actually might be because it's the kind of theology that I spend a lot of time thinking about or reading or whatever. And so the, it, it can sometimes feel as like I'm reading a theology book and I have to like step, 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 step away from like the theology of the book and try to figure out what the book itself is trying to say. So even what I'm trying to say here is even for people like me who it's like, should this, the worldview of it is sort of like what I would want a book to be even I have to say, okay, what's the book trying to be here? You know, like I, I still have to let the book wash over me too, even though the beats, the, the sort of like theological beats of it are in keeping with what I'm used to thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so interesting. All those different perspectives. I wish I could even hear from some of our listeners right now. Well, they can, like because what? they can share them yeah. on Facebook I know. <laughs> or in the comments over on, on Substack. I want to actually, you know, Tim, you brought up the idea of working out your salvation, which I, th- well, Heidi, I think mentioned that phrase and then mm. you brought it up again. Tim said it first. Yeah. And right. Okay. So you were then asked about what's the rest of this book and the, the phrase working out your salvation calls to mind the rest of that sentence, the notion of fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Right. And I think that one of the ways to look at the rest of this book is the, uh, you can look at it as part of like this complex mystical love story, which Heidi mentions. I think you can also look at it as the working out of his salvation and fear and trembling. That fear and trembling mm-hmm. aspect of it, you could read this book alongside Kierkegaard or read them back to back or something. And I think they they talk to each other in pretty interesting ways, in addition to obviously reading the scriptures that use those phrases. Yeah. Uh, so what do, do you think that... Well, actually, I'm curious about this from you, Heidi, first. This idea of fear and trembling, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you think that this is a book that is about the fear and trembling aspect of it? like, Or do you think it's about hope aspect of it? And I, I know I'm making like, I'm perhaps a creating false a false dichotomy, dichotomy right. but I'm doing it for the of sake of- I'm going to say both and. I'm doing but, it for the sake of the conversation. Right. I mean, exactly. I know you are. And I mean, of course it's both and, and that's, it's the paradox. It's the mystery. Um, and, and so we have an, I like this, this is a Russian novel. Russian novels are about suffering. They are about, uh, they, 
They are about the interpenetration and connection of death and love. Like all great Russian novels, uh, intentionally or not intentionally, probably both, right? It are about death and love, ultimate things. And what there are no other ultimate things. And, and how one bleeds into the other. I use the word bleeds, which is a little bit of a ironic or meaningful word there, I guess, like a loaded word. Like it's, there's this, it was love and death that brought this thing about for him. Like he loved Eustina and he caused her death. And now he is left with that. And whether on a spiritual level or on a psychological level, to just walk away and begin a new life is too easy, right? And this is a Russian novel. So they're going to force us into that paradox and into that mystery. And the only true human and spiritual resolution of that is the cross, that death and love belong together and end up with hope and end up with restoration. There is like a great fall and then there's also a great rising again. And that is what it means to be human and especially what it means to be a saint in Christian tradition. Um, and, uh, and so that, that complexity, that wrestling between death and love is both trauma and hope all at the same time, right? And that that's what we have. And in this section especially, um, he's leaving everything behind, putting his life continually at risk. And he wants to die, and yet he knows he must live. Um, and he's seeing grace and mercy because he's not catching the plague. Like, there's a miracle there. Um, but he's also, like, just doing this, like, this, oh, man, this, like, very deep soul cleansing as he's immersing himself with sickness, which is again, another paradox. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it's both. And I think it's intentionally both. And it's very Russian in that way and very human in that way. But it's also just very like, um, I was going to say Christian, it is Christian, but I think all religious traditions have yeah. these stories of these great miracle workers, these figures who traverse the countryside at their own risk and, and perform miracles and have mm -hmm. some kind of shadow or shield up around them. And I think that make that, that makes it kind of universally appealing in, the, in that way. Like, and it ties it to this longer tradition of, of literature as well, which brings me to a question that I want to ask you about Tim, because you did mention the magical realism. Hmm. A couple of people told me that actually helped them think about this book, which got me thinking about the question of magical realism in this book, because I'm curious where you see magical realism, where you might see what we would call a miracle, where you might see some form of paganism showing up, because mm -hmm. all of these things do seem to show up in the book sort of at the same time. And it's, and I was, it, I was trying to figure out how do we separate all these things out? How do we say, call something like, what's the difference between something being magical realism in this book versus it being a miracle? Yeah. I don't know that there's really a difference. You know, I, the, the thing that sparks for me is the being the most magically real, most magical realistic. I don't know how to say that would be <laughs> an um, example of magical realism. An example of magical realism would be the kind of folding of time 
temporal into the eternal and back to the temporal again, um, which is it's very different than a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel or a Italo Calvino novel, which like physically bizarre things that are not supposed to happen in the in the natural world happen in those books. It's a, it's different in this book, and so it may be too much of a stretch to call this magical realism, though it may be, you know, it's like a, a little bit helpful to kind of get you into the book. But I do think that it's the theological, the theological construct, as like an academic, but like the theological world would say, no, this isn't magical. This is the way that things actually are. And mm-hmm. I don't know that, I don't know that, Gabriel Garcia Marquez about his books would say, yeah, a man sprouting wings and flying over the river is the way that things actually are. I think he would say something more like, I think he would say something more like, this is the kind of like imaginative world of these people. And there's not this really crisp line between what is natural and supernatural for them, but it's more of an imaginary construct than it is um, theological. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm stretching yeah. here. I don't really know Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I don't know that he ever commented on this in his, so, surely he was asked often, when you read know. this, When you read this book, do you come across moments in this book and you're like, is it that you see these examples of things that happen in the book and you say it reads like books that have magical realism or do you read it and you say, well, that's an example of magical realism. Does the distinction make sense? I think, yeah. So what's the first choice? Do you read it and you say this, this reads like a book that has magic that is kind of an example of that genre yeah. as opposed to that is magical realism. No, I think it more the for, the first this yeah. reminds me, this kind of resembles a book of magical realism, but I don't think that, I don't think that our author is like ripping off magical realism. I just think yeah. it's like the closest category that I could come up with. Yeah. It's like a, a, a construct that helps you think about it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you, I want, I'm curious not to I don't want to pitch you against each other. I mean, I kind of do, but like, it's good drama. Go but, for but like it. when he brought up the concept of magical realism, how did you respond to that? I actually like it as an interpretive tool. Well, come on. You're supposed to say, I know, but <laughs> Tim's a fool. Yes. And this is why. All right. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, or, but I mean, nicely, like in the way kidding. that you would do yeah, it. Just kidding. Uh, yeah. Which is, that's what I'm doing. You always start with the thing you agree with. Mm. <laughs> But but it's good drama if you just drop a little, you know, Tim's a fool. He also sweats a lot. You know, just like say something <laughs> like, you know. Just stoke the... Gang up yeah. on a brother. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then, and then he can yeah. defend himself. And then um, I can just like be like, guys, 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 break it up. I have a solution. <laughs> I feel like there's multiple opportunities to pit us all against each other. David doesn't like it as much as we do, Tim. So wait, he doesn't after that. He doesn't, like, he doesn't like what as much as we do? He doesn't like the book as much as we do. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, so yeah, let's so get him. There's, oh, you let's know, get there's him. all so get me. <laughs> ways to triangulate. Yep. Um, so uh, anyway, I like the magical realism as an interpretive tool in the sense of 
if you're reading a book with magical realism in it, you can go ahead and be like, oh, this like weird bluebird just burst into flame in the middle of a thicket. And then we can go back to the story. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and, in, and that way there's, you can, you can do the same thing with this book in the sense of, okay, so he has like a wolf that follows him around when he's a child. Right. Is yeah. that supposed to be important to the story? Is it okay if I skip that or maybe come back to it later? The answer is always yes. You can skip it. You can come back to it later. Like that's important to say in this story. The, the emphasis in the story is, is, on Arseni and and who he becomes. And now we have the conflict of the story, which is he caused Ustina's death and he is going to work out his salvation through love and prayer. And that is the story. So these other things that happen, it's okay to be like, I don't think I get that right now. I can come back to it or just let that one go, right? So, um, so in that sense, it's like magical realism. Here's how it's different. Um, and I, I actually think Tim would probably agree with this, although I don't want to speak with, for him, that magical realism is those elements are intended to be absurd and to reflect the absurd. However, in this book, they are intended to reveal truth, uh, to reveal spiritual reality that is beyond our vision and um, not to be absurd or tangential. Um, and so the reason that they're there, the reason that there's time bending, the reason that there's uh, children with wolves, the reason some of these things that we're going to see um, are are there to reflect a why a larger spiritual reality that we are our eyes are blinded to in this life, and this is how heaven is meeting earth and kind of breaking through in the thin places. Go ahead, Tim. I'm with all of that. I'm with oh, all man. of that. The only thing that the only thing that I might quibble with, and it's small, is that I think that magical realists would say this is not a glimpse into the absurd. This is a glimpse into kind of like a pre-rational world, or mm-hmm. like a um, I'm, I don't want to say super rational, but kind of like. Yeah, a pre-rational world before the kind of like... Well, let me put my post-enlightenment hat on here and say, what's the difference between the absurd and the pre-rational? I think um, Camus, Albert Camus would be kind of like representative of like this, someone who embraces the absurd. And I think what Mm -hmm. he would say is, look, we live in a rational world and we can't justify belief in things like... um, miracles or in salvation because we have no data to confirm that in our rational world. But I still think that it's good to act good. And so I'm choosing to, to embrace the absurd in like choosing to value human life, let's say. And I think that someone like Gabriel Garcia Marquez would say, I'm dealing with like a kind of context. I'm writing about a context that is far, far away from the Western world. And it's not an irrational world that I'm describing. It's a sort of world that exists before the kind of like a domination of clinical logic was kind of applied to um, 
peoples and groups that had no notion whatsoever of that kind of like Western rationality. I think you would say something like, like that. Like a pre-rational or primeval kind yeah, of yeah, something like that. through. Right. Yeah. Which is when this book takes place. Right, right. But I don't think that the medieval, that medieval Russia, its relationship to kind of... Um, they don't consider it unra- irrational, though. Like, to them, right. it's more rational. Like, of course it's rational sure. that heaven would break through to earth. Like, what's irrational is that we don't have eyes to see it. Yeah. And so the more Arseni enters into his journey of life, the more he sees the truly rational, which is heaven, at the real world versus the shadow lands, as Lewis would put it. So you said, we talked about the idea of working out salvation and penance. And we've talked about his journey being the working out of salvation, but also an act of penance. So let be careful about how I say this. In the context of this book, what Eugene Vodoloshkin is trying to do here, what is the difference as we go forward to the rest of this book between working out salvation and penance? Hmm. If you want to get into the actual theology discussion of that, we can. But I'm I'm talking about like from the book perspective. I think that that's a really important question um, because penance within the Western Catholic tradition is a very specific and technical term. Uh, And that's not the case in the the Eastern Church. Um, And so in saying he is um, his his journey here out is a penitential journey. That's true, but I don't mean it in the technical Catholic sense of there's a finite amount of work to be done and suffering to be endured to make up for a specific sin. So if you go to confession in the Western church, a priest might say, here's your penance and give you like 30 Hail Marys Marys and, and this many alms and Right, take a pilgrimage to Rome, these kinds of things. That is not the case in the in the Eastern Church at all. It's a mystical relational experience with God uh, that that takes place over time, like a, a posture. It's it's a posture of of repentance um, that uh, that you, at a burden you take upon yourself um, to to endure the weight, the full weight of what you have created through the fallenness of the works of your hands. And, and that's the posture that he's having in his pilgrimage of the Christian life from this point forward. My understanding of like the kind of framework of the Catholic understanding of penance and sin is it's, it occurs within, let's call it like a legal framework I've accumulated um, a certain number of crimes. I'm like, I'm talking like in a very rudimentary way. I hope that my Catholic friends can forgive me. This is just trying to illustrate a point. You have accumulated a certain number of sins, like you've accumulated a certain number of crimes. And in the legal system, to be free from those crimes, to be free from those sins, a certain amount of kind of like countermeasures must be performed. Just like someone who's sent to prison um, for 10 years, this has been accounted by a judge and a jury to be the, the appropriate amount of time to work off the sins that were committed. And now 
I'm going to put this back on you. My understanding of the Orthodox view is that, yeah, it's much more mystical and it's almost like yeah, they call leaving it a, a citizenship of sin, like a total world and mystically migrating into a citizenship of heaven. And so it's not within like a legal framework and it's not even, I'm using the word citizen. It's not even like really like a citizen framework, but it's like, it's a, it's a mystical path, not a legal path. Yeah. And it's not even a super common word. Like we use this word, like I haven't really even heard that word. It's really more about a posture of repentance within your heart and a willingness to, um, to take action, to, to make it right and to bear the weight of it. And, and I, I do think within the Catholic tradition, I think, I think you got it right. I also think that there is a more positive connotation to the idea that, that penance is a way of clear. It's, there's the grace to it. There's, there's a mercy to it that God is, is allowing us to participate the way a child would in making cookies in the kitchen, right? Like I would bring my kids in to like, help me make muffins or whatever. And they just ended up making a mess. I didn't need their help, but for them to participate means that they like that, that entrance in and participation is a really important thing for them and mm-hmm. for their formation as chefs, yeah. right. Is to be able to participate in making the muffins, even though they make a mess and I could do it myself. And so with Catholic penance, there, there is this idea of like, and I am participating by by submitting myself to the priest and the priest gives me a way to clear out the obstacles that I have built myself. And, and that participatory act in salvation becomes very important to my formation as a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is an important part of both the Orthodox and the Catholic understanding, even though the Catholic understanding is much more technical and much more specific. And the Orthodox understanding is much more um, uh, mystical and, and, um, and less prescribed. Though I think um, our Catholic listeners yeah. would probably say that, it, that in the Catholic church, the, that tradition, there's, it is still, there's it's still a still mystery. It's mystical, yeah. right. But it's not prescriptive the way that it is. Anything um, that, sorry, yeah, go ahead. There's a lag. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm done. I uh, just, I, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I was just going to say that, the, one of the key things, that, the key terms, I think that all of the traditions would talk about, and even people who are talking about confessing your sins in a Protestant tradition are talking right. about reconciliation, like the idea of being reconciled with God. And um, I think that that's one of the, the things that this holy man is talking to Arseny about is the idea of being reconciled with God and allowing Eustina to be reconciled with God. And that by, by living this penitent life, in the service of others, he is working towards that reconciliation. And I know working is a loaded word there, not intended, but I'm not intended that way. But I think that, you know, the, the Orthodox have this notion of theosis, right? Like becoming like God and that, and, and I think that that is also what this book is kind of pointing us towards is like, that there is this journey of like penitence. It's like, and this, this this journey towards reconciliation is an ongoing thing. It's it's like a turning away. It's you know it's uh, it doesn't just happen in one moment. 
And he, so he has to go on this journey. So then we're talking about all these big theological questions. We've talked about magical realism. Raised by the book. Right, right? raised by the book. We're not leaving the book. (laughs) But one of the questions I have is, on the surface, this might seem obvious, but just bear with me, bear this, bear with me on this question. Given the things that we're talking about, these theological ideas, these questions, these mysteries, how is this book different than other books like that in the literary canon, even something as obvious as like Pilgrim's Progress? Mm. Mm. Great question. That is a great question. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Pilgrim's Progress is allegorical. And so it's, it's not intended to tell a, the story of, of a human, but in, in the sense of the journey of the soul. But what's interesting about Pilgrim's Progress is that it is offered to us as a Protestant answer to the allegoric, to the medieval allegorical tradition, because the medievals, especially in the West, were crazy about allegories. They wrote allegories all the time. And John Bunyan offered us Pilgrim's Progress as like, yeah, but none of that that's wrong. Here's our Protestant allegory that gives us the true kind of pilgrimage of the soul in response to the, to the medieval Western allegories. And this book, I think, oh man, I think it's hardly allegorical at all. Mm. I think it's just very, very human. Yeah. There's too many feces jokes for it to be allegorical. Right. Not not even feces jokes. Feces jokes. No, no. The 95 feces? <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Heidi. <laughs> I don't see much allegory in this book. It's like, it's strange, but it's like a blunt realism in a way. For all, we've been talking about how supernatural it is, but it is just kind of like, it's blunt realism in so many ways. Oh, man. Yeah, it's true. I. Have I'm, you just I'm made like a, a, like you did the, your face was like, I have something. You well, know, I and do. Then, I don't know if I can like actually get it out. It's this is this like, one of those where you're trying to say an important thing, but you've got a another yeah, one of those things. That's I want to say something important. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to. That's We're what that face just is. Let you wrestle through it. That's part what that of, face is. Part of what is so powerful about a book like this, and there are not many books like this, but like I would say books like this, books like um, Pilgrim's Progress, I would say Brothers Karamazov also springs to mind, is that the path to salvation for us is largely without mileposts and signposts. We don't know where we are. And if you don't think that this is like a serious issue, like the greatest minds in the Western literary canon have wrestled with this question of like, just psychologically never knowing where you are in the path. Maybe the greatest sociologist of all time, Max Weber, his masterwork is all about this sense. So that his masterwork, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. His thesis is that once Protestantism was kind of like birthed in Europe and there's this kind of um, flight from the old modes where the priest would say, you have done this thing wrong. Now say 30 Hail Marys and perform this good deed and you will be absolved. There is a great kind of 
psychological rest that comes from that. Okay, I have done what has been required of me. And the priest, the mediator between God and me has said, it is okay now. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes, I can relax. Max Weber's thesis is that once that is stripped away, the priest class is gone. It's replaced with the priesthood of all believers in the kind of Lutheran Protestant understanding. Well, it feels free at first, but there comes this kind of discomfort and the discomfort is how do I know where I am in the, in the process of salvation? And Max Weber said, get this, follow me. Capitalism spontaneously is kind of like gets adrenalized in Northern Europe during this time as a response to the psychological discomfort of not knowing where you are in the path of salvation. And so, like, there's spirit of infinite progress then, because there's no yes. signposts along the way to say I'm set free, except your own belief. Exactly, exactly. And so there's not; it's not embodied. It's not embodied. So you just have to keep improving totally. yourself all the time, totally, and improving society. And so the accumulation of material wealth, and you know, like maybe giving the wealth away, but the the notion that I can achieve and look, here are the stacks of money that I have to prove that I'm doing good in the world and that God's favor is shining on me. That's where capitalism is birthed, according to Max Weber. I'm not saying I, uh, I think it's a plausible thesis. (laughs) It's a plausible thesis. It's more than plausible. That book has, um, that was a fun moment there just now. When I, what's that? You when just I, went through a process. Uh-huh. I did. I was like, do I agree with Max <laughs> Weber's thesis? I, I can absolutely imagine it. It like really like addresses like very real things. All of that, that long discourse was just to say, um, there's something in us that gnaws at us if we can't kind of like know where we are on the path. And part of what's wonderful about reading a book like this, oh, and I'll also put in a book like, um, oh my gosh, Graham Greene, what's the book? The Power and the Glory. The Power and the Glory. Is that salvation to the whiskey priest is hidden from him. He doesn't know where he is. And it's only at the end of the book that it's revealed to us and not even to him that it's revealed to us where he is on the path or what his life was worth. And what's wonderful about this book is like as unique as it is to us, the world that, that, that Arseni is inhabiting is so strange and unique to us, but we can recognize the kind of mile markers along the way that he is making progress. And it's like such a comfort that this is what the kind of hidden life of the spirit might look like in this world. But you, we even see this idea of like not knowing where you are on the journey in the book because we have the whole thing about the potter's field where they have like a place where certain people go if they, because you don't ever know when you're going to die, right? Mm. Like you don't know if, you know, these are people who got killed randomly. They might, but they didn't get to go to confession or something like that. And so those people didn't know where they were on the journey. And so they like the way they internalized that lack of knowing where they are on the journey in this medieval, late medieval Russian context is like the opposite of the capitalistic approach. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If we're, if we're going to buy into 
Max Weber. Max Weber's uh, view theories, which Tim is 10% closer to buying. I just, that's what, I, that's what we just <laughs> experienced right. on the show I together. I don't know if that's true, David. Maybe, maybe so. You might have to convince me of it because I think one of the. Uh, Wait, which so what's much, true? What, that they don't know where they're at in salvation. I think what the, the existential angst that, like the angst that comes from the, like a life lived within this, like a sacramental life is lack of access to the sacraments, right? Which is a huge part of, um, of the power and the glory. Like that is his job. That is why he remains in Mexico instead of fleeing because right. Mexico needs a priest uh, to perform baptisms and to hear confessions and to put, as, as he keeps saying over and over man, again, to, to perform the Eucharist, to put God in the people's mouth. Right. Because that is how they measure their that's how, you know, and you know, you and I have both experienced exactly what what Tim talks about, that sense of the lifting of the spiritual and psychological weight of confession. And that is a um, I think the angst comes when in, in, in this kind of in this life, in the sacramental life, the angst comes when you can't get access to the sacraments when you can't get to confession, when you can't receive the Eucharist, when you don't have a priest around, uh, when, and, and, um, or if, as, uh, as the elder says, if you bury Eustina over here, the people are going to come at night and dig up her body and put it in the potter's grave because it's so inappropriate for an un, for, for someone who was not shriven, who didn't receive the sacrament before death to be buried in a Christian burial. And so for them to have that, to lift that psychological weight, they would dig up her body and put it in the potter's field. Um, and, and so, of course, we can all see the dangers in that then, right? Um, uh, and, and that is, I think, another part of the contemplation of this novel, but it's assumed, right, mm -hmm, within mm -hmm, the novel. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we and strongly so encourage you to accept that, to just accept right. that reality. During the reading of the but book. Perhaps don't live out the bit digging up dead bodies thing in your yeah. own life. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't recommend right. that. Right. But understand that whether you agree with the sacramental vision or not, that that, that is assumed within the novel. And um, and, and, and you but, must, as you're saying, Tim, enter into it in order to understand yeah. what our sin is going through, even if you say, but that's not yeah, yeah, how, yeah. like, I'm, a, I'm Protestant or whatever, and I don't see it this way. <laughs> I don't know that I think, though, that the book is saying that that's Christian. That part. What do you mean? I think the this. I think it's suggesting that that's like the remnant of some form, some some form of paganism. That there's some pagan superstition. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. And that he is like. And, I don't and think that's he's the whole condoning that of the story. Exactly. The whole con the whole point is that even though. You can only be saved in this life. Even though Eustina didn't receive confession and unction before she died, even though God is giving her salvation through the salvation of, of Arseni. Now, and they're not even married officially within the church, but but there's so much grace. Like there's there's this pursuit of of Arseni's soul, like they would both be lost if it wasn't for God's grace to give them a chance to be saved together. 
and as far as he has fallen, he can in the, in the short nine months that they're together, as far as he's fallen, fallen into hell, right? Like God pursues him and he gets to spend the rest of his life loving her in the way that he failed to do. And that is his salvation. I think that's beautiful. Loving yeah, people. it is. It is. Yeah. One thing that I have heard from people, even Orthodox people, is they're like, while the overarching themes are very Orthodox, they don't want people reading this book now to think that the practices of the book are necessarily what the Orthodox church teaches. And it's like, yeah. Like the mixing like, of wormwood for, um, with water for the, do you mean those kind of practices? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I can't yeah. think like that some, anybody would be like, yeah. yeah, this is Orthodox. But I think people who don't, well, I, I, I mean, like really? you can read online, you can read the internet. Okay. Um, like people get, I think people who are not familiar with Eastern Christianity can conflate sort of some of the primitive, the medieval, the medieval primitivisms, yeah. primitive medieval aspects of it with East, the Eastern church. But I think to your point, Heidi, one of the things that this book is about is the intersection of that primitive paganism or the remnants of certain aspects of primitive, um, I don't even, maybe not paganism. Maybe what was the word you used? Just, um, just medieval superstition, superstition yeah. intersecting with the, the life, the sacramental vision right. of the world. Well, and just the, like and today the, we have modernism intersecting with yeah, exactly. the, 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 um, the, the sacramental view, the life of the church. The book is not intended to proselytize. It's not intended to convert. It's just a story about this amazing, this person. And so when I say just, that sounds reductionist. It is a story. It is a narrative. It's a literary artifact, not a conversion tool. Um, mm-hmm. So your point's completely valid. We're immersed not only in Orthodoxy and Eastern Christian spirituality, but in a, in a very specific way, like it's hesychism. Like it is, it's a very specific even form of Orthodox spirituality. Um, right. And it's I think that's what confuses some people who are not Russian familiar with medieval novel. Yeah. So we so, have this particular form of Orthodoxy. We've got the Russian aspect. We've got the medieval aspect. We've got, you know, these are, a lot of people are poor um, you know, during a plague, like there's all these things that are coming to the surface and intersecting at the same time. And I think people who are, you know, I don't know. I've had some interesting conversations about this book with people. Yeah. I mean, it's just like saying like Christian Lovren's daughter is going to make you become Catholic. Like it is, it's, Maybe it does. Maybe it has that impact or maybe the on opposite, me. But though, it's I a novel about say. the life of Kristen Lovren's daughter. And we learn from that. Like, But if if you approach this as some kind of theological treatise, as Tim has already said several times, I think rightly, you're missing the point. The point is like enter into the story. We're out of time. So let's talk about... Uh, what we should look for next. <laughs> can I say, instead of what we should look for next, can I say how, how incredible the craft is of the scene that we have been talking about? I, the first time I read it, I was just gut punched. It hurts so bad because it's so well done. And it's hard to read, man. It is so hard to read. I mean, like reading it now as a married man, it's like, it hurts even worse. And it hurt bad the first time. 
So, yeah. Do you want to do you want to say more about that? Like, be more specific. I mean, do, like, you don't have to go into like your inner 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 life here. But like, what do you mean? Unpack what you mean a little bit more. Like, just you mean as a married man or just the about the scene? The scene. I mean, it you can just talk about feels being relentless. A it feels like the jaws of death are closing around her and her child and there's nothing that can be done. And it's almost like from the moment that her water breaks, it's, it, you know where it's going to go and you know that it's going to go in a terrible place and you know there's nothing Arsene can do and you know that he is, he is like responsible and it just happens and it keeps happening. And it's like gravity it just pulls her down. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the most powerful and hardest scenes I've ever read in any book ever. Heidi, you said you barely read yeah. it. This, you, you don't yeah. really, I, do you want to say anything it, about it before of, I yeah. say something? The, craft of it is incredible. There's a lot of ands there's, it's all one paragraph. Uh, so like the pay, the way he paced it, the way that he, I mean, to your point, Tim, it's, it's so gut punching that I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not for like analyzing it. Like yeah, if, I had, yeah, if yeah. I had students, I wouldn't be like, what makes this a great scene? Yeah. Because it's so powerful, but it, it is it is just so incredibly written and I can't, uh, I, I just, I can't even imagine writing it. Mm. Like if I was like him, I just picture him like sitting at his computer and trying to put together the words to describe. There's no way this like, guy writes on a computer, Heidi. <laughs> okay. He writes well, on I scrolls. It, like over his parchment with his, there you go. yeah. Yeah. Dipping his, quill. his pen yeah. in the ink. Um, yeah. his, yeah. Um, the, <laughs> To, to write this scene must have done something to him and taken, like taken something from him. And I, I, I'm grateful to him for doing it because it is one of the great scenes in literature. It doesn't get enough play. Do you want to, do you want to address what to look for next before we go? Cause we're, I we're... Hear what you had to say. Oh, um, so I, have complex feelings <laughs> because I'm so glad when you get to this scene, it's, it's, and, and not in the sense that like, it's a happy scene to read, but I'm reading the, when I get to this scene, I can't help but think about it from the perspective of storytelling. Like I set myself, I'm like removing my, I'm, I'm looking at it from a bit of a meta perspective. And, um, I, this is going to sound a little critical, I kind of mean it. I don't know. I kind of mean it. I'm not as in love with this. I, I've said that. I'm not as in love with this book as you guys are because of some of the meta aspects of it. And so when you get to this scene, you finally get act drama is the way I look at it. And he can, he, he writes it so compellingly, like the, the drama of the scene, the choices that they're making her knowing what's coming, all these things that Tim was talking about are where you see him as a writer shine through yeah and to your point heidi it's like you can't you you like you look at through your fingers right yeah yeah um, 
And uh, I think it was that yesterday we talked about that. We, I think we were recording. Was it yes? Which episode was it that I was talking about reading through your fingers? But that's very difficult to do, actually. I think it was on our East of Eden episode because Tim's shaking his head. Um, but I think that you really see his skill as a dramatist in this section. And so I'm always a little, I find the first, I find parts of this book to be uh, lacking from that perspective. And so for me that you get to that point and then like he kicks it into high gear and you're like, take us away, man. And like, it's so sad and bleak, you know, but it is so well done. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of sad and bleak books. So, (laughs) yeah, but I also, you know, can totally understand Heidi why you can't, like you can't bring yourself to do it, to read it again. Well, it's the same reason as you like it. Like it, I mean, not that you like the death. I don't like what happens, but like how the, the, yes. the, art, the artistry of it, I, I think is It's just profound. a different response. Like, yeah. yeah. And for whatever reason, I'm, I mean, I have, you know, I've been in the room for four childbirths and uh, that's, it's a, boy, is that a visceral experience even for a dad. Um, and, uh, so I kind I kind of, you know, I kind of do have to, I kind of like set, have to like step outside of myself. <laughs> maybe I do, maybe I do that as a coping mechanism. Maybe oh, I step outside yeah. of it and think about the scene as a writer. I don't want to say as, anything. Instead but... of like, <laughs> I mean, um, but I do, but what do I, what do I not do that over Heidi? Like what books am I not doing that with? <laughs> You always do it. Am I always coping? For it. (laughs) (laughs) Am I always coping? Um, Well, now I've got to think about that. Am I always coping? Yeah, I'm always coping. Who's not always coping? Right, Tim? Help me out here. We're always coping in fear. We're always coping. We're always coping. You literally just did it. That's, it's called, you know, being, what's the difference between like self awareness and uh, self examination and coping, Heidi? Like there's a vast difference and we can talk about this later. <laughs> well, we're at the end of this episode. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but truly, no, I think that maybe, maybe that is all I'm doing is just coping with the experience of having been in the room, but that doesn't explain. I've got, we, we can talk about my criticisms of the book if we want later, but I don't really want to do that because I don't necessarily think that they're anything but me. And that's what, as I'm reading it this time, I've been thinking a lot about where do, where is this just me and where do I feel like I have a valid complaint to make with, I don't even know if the complaint's the right word, like a valid question about the book. Well, um, and you just have to probably let yourself not love it. Like I didn't really love that. What was the name of that book that I didn't love? <laughs> Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, Confederacy of Dunces, I, yeah. Like I got, by the end, I was like, I appreciate this book. I get it more. I but yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. just I like to to yeah. your point, sometimes it's just but I yeah, I didn't ever love it and that's okay. I I I respect this book a lot. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it's not like a hard book for me. Now, that doesn't mean I reserve the right to read it again in 10 years and for it to mean something different to me. <laughs> Same um, for me with Confederacy of Dances. There we go. There we go. See, <laughs> look look at us. Um, I know. Tim, what the do you? Moment. What books do you feel like that about? You reserve the right to one day like them to feel differently about them in ten years. I felt that way the about notebook? Heart of Darkness. Yeah, the Notebook. No, I felt that way about Heart of Darkness. I hated that book. Hated it. 
And then once I had a few more years, I was like, no, I really appreciate this book. I can never love that book, but boy, I really appreciate that book now. And when you read a book for the first time, also it makes a big, can color your, your experience with it. A lot yeah. of mm-hmm. things that, you know, like it's like the same way as when you watch a movie or look at a painting or whatever, how you're feeling in that moment kind of is hard to escape. As I Lay Dying was like that. I hated mm-hmm. that book the first mm-hmm. time I read it. And then when we read it on the show, I'm like, oh, this book's amazing. I love it. So Yeah. Yeah. So in 15 years when we do the Loris Redux on the show, and uh, we'll see. We'll see where things are in my in my appreciation <laughs> of it. Um, no, again, I really respect this book. I think I just have you know some things about it that kind of drive me personally crazy. So when we get to a scene where like this, it's like this is so artistically profound mm-hmm. that I just like. I don't. I don't enjoy reading it. I'm not saying that. It's hard. It's hard to. You know what I'm saying? Like I yeah, enjoy experiencing yes. great yeah. art. Mm-hmm. in that way because it it moves you in a way. And I think one of the things that I find with this book is sometimes I find it to not to be a little cold for me, which is a dissonance because being orthodox you would expect me to not feel mm-hmm. cold about it. And so I think some and again, maybe I'm working through some things there <laughs> as I read it. Uh, okay, for you, you it's usually about craft though. Like knowing you and how you read for you, a lot of it's just about like the flow of the words, the pacing of the story, the like how, like, and you don't yeah, it's true. like things that are overwritten. And this is a bit overwritten. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what all it is. Yeah. Okay, Heidi, uh, prepare us for the rest of it. And then Tim, give us your question or whatever, you know, say something wise at the end. Great. And this episode was something wise, Tim. <laughs> something important. I think that just... Um, Keep keep reading the story as it is the unfolding of Arseni's life and his spiritual pilgrimage um, and a great and and the story of his of of his love like it's a love story. That's my advice. I don't have anything wise to say other than don't ever forget the death of his wife and child. It's always it's always there. And as the book gets, um, yeah, they're just like gris, grisly parts to this book. And remember, that's always in the background. Well, next week, we are going to discuss pages 109 to 180. And again, if you need to know what that is in the audiobook, check out that Facebook thread um, if you're on Facebook. Um, this has been another great conversation, guys. You know, these are the books that, that get us get us chatting and you know it's fun when when a book uh gives us some theological things to, to debate and wrestle over too. Yeah. it's good um well i think that's probably true among the, the listeners too so we'd I love know. to hear it's, from you like well, how are you book doing good work when it's polarizing <laughs> yeah that's right how are you all feeling about this book what's your response to it what are some passages you love let us know all of that in the either in the comments over on substack at Close Reads HQ or, uh, or on the Facebook page. Again, if you uh, want to subscribe, it's closereads.substack.com. That's Close Reads HQ. You can get the bonus episodes there and you can support the show and the work that we're doing here as well. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you get access to things like Heidi's monthly column, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks for August. So, um, well, with that, for Tim McIntosh, 
Department for Hiding White. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.